Welcome to another episode of Athens and Jerusalem. Let's begin where we can't escape. Let's begin with Logos. Now I would say that this openness, this being in the world, this referring to the world, to objects in the world, what I would like to call self-transcendence, this is disappearing as soon as you project a human being into a lower dimension than its own dimension. The point of the V goes up to the, to the nuclear explosion that created it. Uh, now, tell me this, Dr. Oppenheimer. Uh, do you ever become frightened at what you're finding out here in this area that can't be measured in either time or space? I, you see, that's a real point. Do not be afraid. Open your hearts, open up your hearts. Open up your hearts to Athens and Jerusalem. The infants of our culture, united, independent, polarized, and even bloody. Athens, the cradle of wisdom and rationality. Jerusalem, the cradle of faith and spirituality. In this podcast, we look at reunion. Could reason be more than modern secular skepticism? And could spirituality be more than belief? Welcome to the second episode of uh, our podcast, Athens and Jerusalem. Today, it's only me and Stephen talking. Cameron couldn't be with us. But we hope we're going to have a great time anyway. The topic we are going to have today is the one and the many. And I know you, Steve, you have some thoughts on the topic. Well, somewhat somewhat scattered, but maybe, maybe even before starting to talk about the one and the many, we can say a, a word about about the relevance of these sorts of deep philosophical topics to present day concerns. You know, why why is this a topic that's even worth talking about? You know, it's something that philosophers have been talking about for for millennia without seeming to come to any sort of agreement about. It's just this, you know, nonstop um, argument between is everything one, is everything many? Um, and I think one way to think about this, which which is helpful, is um is to think of civilization uh and and the history of ideas and everything that that binds us together as a as a community as a culture as kind of like a tapestry or you know a carpet um which is comprised of different threads the warp and the weft and when you're making uh a tapestry or any sort of textile you begin with these stretched threads uh, which are the warp, which are the backbone of the of the tapestry, and around that you weave the weft. Um, and in the completed product, what you see is the is the weft and not the warp. You know, you see the you know the tufts of of thread that stick out that that determine the pattern of the carpet, and you don't see the threads of the warp. You know, unless through continuous use, you know, and and where the 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 warp threads start start becoming visible start to become visible. And in a way, we can think of this these big ideas like the one and the many uh, and other ideas that historically the ancient Greeks were the first to, to, to debate. You know, the question of change and stasis, 
question of purpose, you know, and necessity or purpose versus necessity, form and matter, being and becoming, the ideal and the real, subject and object. All of these are, are huge topics which we can think of as constituting the these invisible threads that explain much of the structure of present day society of civilization but in a way they're invisible we don't talk about them on a day-to-day -day basis they're kind of deeply embedded within and i think this question of the of the one and the many is one of those big invisible threads that is not a normal topic of daily conversation but which deeply informs the way we look at the world deeply informs the way that we navigate the world and as, as a as a useful starting point we can go back to these ancient greeks um not so much because we can go back and see in them you know fully fleshed out theories about these fundamental ideas because all that we have from them is extremely fragmentary we have a quote here we have a quote there um and um and so what we can maybe do is take certain statements by these ancient philosophers as helpful starting points because others, even ancient Greek philosophers themselves, uh, sort of treated these even more ancient philosophers like Heraclitus and Parmenides and others uh, as, um, as, uh, as reservoirs of, of snappy quotations that, that they could use uh, to, to prove their own point or not. And so, one great quotation that we can that that we can start with for 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 this topic, you know, comes from from Heraclitus, um, in which he says, "Listening not to me, but to the logos, it is wise to agree that all things are one." Uh, and it's interesting, a little bit maybe uh, maybe a little bit counterintuitive because people like to distill or simplify these ancient philosophers uh, to you know one big idea. And it's often the for Heraclitus and Parmenides, they they often get distilled into, well, Heraclitus was the philosopher of change. He said you can't step into the same river twice. And Parmenides is the philosopher that kind of opposes Heraclitus. He's the one that said that, you know, that all change is an illusion. Um, but this statement of Heraclitus that it's wise to agree that all things are one seems to seems to, you know, push against, you know, thinking of Heraclitus monolithically, thinking of any of these philosophers monolithically. And I think it's, it, your point on Heraclitus is very important, and because we, when we we say that he he was this one the one who talked about we, we could never step into the same river twice, mm -hmm. then we are only telling half the truth, or maybe it's actually the same truth in that that statement as in the statement about logos. And I think it's mm -hmm. very important to to understand this. And I would also say that I, I, it's often said that Heraclitus he wrote in aphorisms or just s mm -hmm. some fragments. But mm -hmm. Gaudama's interpretation, he says that they, no, he, he must have been written whole theoretical uh, ideas. And th that's also something that's very important, I think, because we, we often mm -hmm. put him like in 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 a in a box where he's he's just talking about fragments. He's talking very mm -hmm. dark and mysterious. But I think is is he has a huge uh, idea. Yes, and Gaudamard, yeah, talks about talks about this and how 
yeah, there must have been some some very um, coherent ideas that that at some point were expressed expressed by people like like Heraclitus. Um, and he points out this this beginning statement and uh, which so unfortunately is lost to history, you know, that of this logos which holds forever, men prove uncomprehending. And really beginning this this idea of there being, a world which is manifest to our senses, a world which is visible, but also aspects of reality which are invisible. Um, and to start with that, as, as that's a very powerful starting idea for a phil philosophical system, because one could start with the opposite, which is everything that is real is manifest to the senses. But yeah. instead, starting from the perspective of, yes, there are things that are manifest, there are things that we can see and touch and describe, but then underneath that is something which is invisible uh, and something which has to be maybe perceived and approached through some other method than our eyes and our ears. You know, you go in a very different direction if you know from those two different starting points. Yeah, so I think that's very important if you, if you still use the metaphor on the, the carpet. Mm -hmm. if, we, if we use our eyes, we would only see the complexity of the finished carpent and how every every um, uh, paradigm uh, are are looking. How they, how it does and the colors and uh, you know. But we don't see mm -hmm. the what did you call it the the the, the fundamental the, the fundamental yes. and the that's the warp the warp yeah. yeah. So I think that's a very nice metaphor, and to to bring it back also also, and I think also in 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 my in the scientific world I live, they often talk about how complex uh, the world is, but mm -hmm. in 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 some way, if we if we if of course if we use our senses and if we look at every possible object and look at everything that is unique and has some kind of difference and mm -hmm. it also changes at all time so then of course it becomes very complex mm -hmm. but if we are looking beneath and trying to ask more fundamental about what is the mm -hmm. yeah what is actually going on and what is mm -hmm. uh, then we I wouldn't call it simplify, but it's more. It it it, it turns into fewer uh, parts of uh, understanding, and I think we should try mm -hmm. to do more of that when we are also when we are scientists today. Yes, yes, and that's um and and that touches upon I think uh, an aspect of this warp of the one versus the many, which so deeply informs the way we we navigate the world today both in terms of our understanding of the physical world but also socially and that is that you know on this question of the one and the many the modern world and by by modern world i'll say the last few centuries since say the scientific revolution has been dominated by a scientific paradigm that is focused really more on on the side of the many rather than the side of the one um and of course there's a there's uh, in, immediately i can say in response to that well there's of course a, 
an attempt in the in physics, for example, in, in all of the sciences to try to take this world of the many and reduce it to the one by finding, say, the mathematical principles that unite. Uh, so there's a strong tendency towards unity. But this, this process of finding the, the unifying laws behind things is carried out in practice by analyzing things into parts, by breaking things into their components, and then understanding those component parts in isolation. Yes. You know, anyone who's taken an introductory physics class knows that just about every problem uh, in your problem sets has something to do, if it has something to do with the real world, includes a kind of step of simplification that allows you to assume that this process of analysis is, is totally correct. So for example, you, you calculate the velocity of a ball rolling down an inclined plane and you're told to ignore friction, or you're told to calculate, you know, the rotations of, of planets around, you know, uh, around a sun, ignoring the, uh, the influence of other planets that may be nearby. In all of the sorts of day-to-day -day problems, we, um, we allow ourselves to take the step of simplification which allows us to ignore all the other effects that we know theoretically are there, but for the sake of the problem, let's just ignore everything else and just focus on these, these terms that, that completely dominate. And that turns out to be an extremely efficient and extremely powerful way of, of understanding the world. And this assumption of things being completely separate uh, ends up being, um, uh, being the pathway towards uncovering you know, many of these, of these laws of, of of the universe that are that are extremely useful to us, yes. but, you, but yes. you could you could also because you can also see the see the same uh, patterns the same uh, paradigm in uh, the social science, yes, and especially because they this this is I would say it 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 started in the in the sixty and the seventies not before but but after they when they compare something they some of them actually said that we should only look after what is different not what is similar so they they were focusing on the differences mm -hmm. and trying to split everything into unique parts mm -hmm. this this is also something to this is actually a moral statement because they they didn't want us to to be cultural difference so they they didn't want to yeah we are more similar than than they are and so, so this kind of so they they try to to uh, to you you uh, to make everything unique yeah and it's also in many ways it, it it has ended with we are only analyzing and not synthesizing so we are mm -hmm. not trying to make the unity that the the physics uh, yeah, the science of physics are doing. So we are only analyzing, and and to analyze means to split. It means to just tear everything apart, mm -hmm. and that's what they are doing with empirical mm -hmm. methods. So they're just mm -hmm. tearing everything apart, and it's no. Then they're not even trying to to make a synthesis. You know, to 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 bring it together in any way. Yes. 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 And another way in the in the social sciences in which this, let's say, you know, bias towards the many over the one has a has a huge influence is in things like 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 Darwinian natural selection, 
which in its simplest form, we think of each organism as competing with every other organism for scarce resources. Um, and that gives us a, a picture in which we individual human beings are fundamentally at odds with other human beings. You know, we're, we're all in a state of competition and the strongest survive. Um, and uh, as with everything, all other creatures on the planet as well. And this, this view, which is really a view of the, of, in which the many takes precedence over the one has obvious consequences for the kinds of social arrangements we feel are, are going to be ideal. But already in, in, as, the, as science progresses, as we understand more and more deeply you know, the laws of the physical world, of the biological world, there's a kind of return from the many to the one that we can see you know, as we understand, say, you know, the physics of particles better, we realize that, yes, it's useful to see the world uh, and interpret the world as divided into individual atoms and to understand that everything in the end is, is um, uh, can be, is, is comprised of atoms. Yet we also realize that, that's, that fundamental particles of which there are a few discrete types are all are identical to each other within each type. So for example, you know, electrons and quarks, that every electron is identical to every other electron, like mathematically identical. They they are, you know, an electron in a way can simply be described by a few quantum numbers. Um, there isn't some extra stuff that makes one electron unique from another electron. So there's a kind of strange unity behind this multiplicity of appearances now, and Plato had a had a sense of this too, going again back to the ancient Greeks. You know, Plato, of course, didn't know about atoms and didn't know about uh, you know about quantum numbers and so forth. But he saw that there were certain repeating patterns in the world, and he inferred from that, well, you know, certain a horse looks kind of like you know has very similar characteristics to other horses of a species, and so it's natural to to imagine that well, maybe there's some form or some archetypal reality you know, of a horse out of which all horses are made, a kind of a cookie cutter stamp. You know, when you see a bunch of cookies and they're all of the same shape, you imagine, okay, there must be a cookie cutter stamp out there that's, you know, that's making all of these cookies to be exactly that that shape. So there's a natural, um, a natural sort of uh, tendency to want to infer the existence of some sorts of, of some kind of forms uh, that underlie the multiplicity of things that give a kind of unity to this world of appearances. And even again, going, you know, following Plato's thread in this great sort of, you know, warp of, of, of this idea, you know, even Plato wondered, well, maybe out of this multiplicity of forms, they're derivative of, of still greater and more fundamental forms, like what is true, what is good, what is beautiful. And maybe those three fundamental forms themselves are all aspects of one you know, great form that unites everything else. And maybe it can all be reduced to, to, to one uh, behind that. Yes, uh, and I, I think because as a Norwegian uh, philosopher, he he, uh, he understand uh, that uh, in in, uh, in in the end, there is only one thing we are actually looking for, and that's the good in, in yes. the Plato's writing. And he, he calls himself a henologue. Henology mm -hmm. is the, to learn about the one. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, so. So he's, but but before because we we have to, I think that's a, one of we have to make some argument why 
why we should try to also to find what is what what brings us together what is what is the one or or mm-hmm. the, the patterns that is fundamental for everything but there was something you said about this competition or what we should say that we I think it's very interesting that we are living in many ways. We live in a society where we don't feel that we really belong to the world. We don't belong to reality. Mm-hmm. And and I think that this this uh, scientific way of thinking is one of the problem. And I think also that because when 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 natural science in the seventeen year 100 they we became in many ways uh split or we were not part of nature anymore mm-hmm. we that were the I... one we were one that were able to to create nature or to i mean to, not to create but to but to um to explain the the law of God in many ways, yeah, that would yeah. that would Newton would say that. Yes, and and we uh, John Wheeler, the great physicist of the of the mid twentieth century, uh, put this in the in the following terms. He said that the the way that scientists thought about the world was as though there were a ten centimeter thick glass wall separating us from the things that were being observed. You know that. That there's this, and philosophically, you 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 talk about this as a separation between the the subject and the object, and that was part of the approximation that worked so well in the first few centuries uh, uh, following the discovery of the scientific method to assume that the subject and the object were two completely different things. Um, but we come into the 20th century and we realize, oh, hold on, the there's actually an intimate connection between the subject and object that that it's really only a first order approximation maybe it maybe in some cases a second order approximation that we can that we can assume this kind of glass wall in, in between us and the world but when you get to the observation of fundamental particles you realize that that you cannot separate the observer from the thing being observed the two form a single system and this idea of the unity of the subject and object coming together um, is has been seen, I think, across the board in other in other um, in other disciplines as well. I mean, just to give an example of maybe our initial um, sort of way of interpreting Darwinian natural selection is that everything is is competing, every individual thing is competing. But you get a little bit farther into the theory, and you realize that actually one thing that emerges from this huge, you know, blooming, buzzing confusion of things. Um, competing against each other is you have also cooperative units and cooperation can also be an element in the evolution of things. Uh, and then you have this idea of of ecosystems, you know, of entire assemblages, not just of individual ants cooperating to form a nest or bees cooperating to form a hive, but different species, which in their own ecological niches may be, may be you know, competing, nevertheless are in a kind of a, symbi- a symbiosis within a, a, a given environment. Uh, and so in the biological world, you have a kind of initial, let's say, way of, 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 of understanding it as resolved into these individual component parts that are all competing. But then when a deeper understanding leads you to understand, well, there are 
maybe more slender threads, maybe less visible threads, uh, but that that like you know like spiderweb threads, you know that that weave the thing together into a single into a single organism almost. Yeah. Um, and that's the case also with you know with with the world all the way down at the quantum level, uh, but all, but you know working our way up to to the level of of biology and working our way up to the level of of human systems of, of civilizational systems and that's where the rubber really starts hitting the road in terms of okay starting with this very abstract idea of well is it the one or the money and people have been arguing about this for thousands of years well it comes to the present day how do we look at ourselves in the present day vis-a-vis -vis society how do we look at the individual vis-a-vis -vis society are we just in competition with everybody else for scarce resources and whoever you know ends up with the biggest pile of money wins or the or the biggest or, or you know or, or the most power wins or do we see ourselves more as a kind of interconnected web of relationships and that in in a way as a is a higher reality and it's not choosing one or the other it's not saying one is right and the other is wrong but depending on our depending on the lens we're looking at, depending on the level at which we're doing the analysis, uh, it, uh, it, either we're seeing individual bricks in a building or we're seeing, or we're seeing the, the building as a whole. I, I, think, I think it's very, it, we should write a, a new uh, um, <laughs> textbook for, for children actually in, in natural science to, to, to write well, in, in a way that they understand that they are part of nature and not divided from it. I think mm -hmm. that what what is interesting in in social science is that that they they had this idea that we are that we were not because they were criticizing Descartes and the um, the solipsistic dualism. theory. Mm -hmm. I, I not only the, the the dualism but also his method because his mm -hmm. method was very solipsistic, which mm -hmm. means that he was alone. Sitting yeah. by himself and yeah. and trying to to understand everything, and uh, they started to think that no, that's not how because language is not something you can create by yourself and you can't think languagely uh, through yourself. You have to have more people around you. So mm -hmm. intersubjectivity became a huge part of uh, the thinking in social science, mm -hmm. um, but it's an epistemic. In, in, that was the, the the beginning. If you if if you read Habermas, you will see that he's is explaining. He he used intersubjectivity to to, uh, to understand our, how we do experience something, mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. how we explain, uh, not how we, uh, not the ontological. Was how to say it? It it doesn't. In his is in his writing, it doesn't say that intersubjectivity or social constructivism is to create the world. It is only mm -hmm. the way we actually are able to understand the world by being explored by the world. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that social social constructivism nowadays. Have turned into some kind of human being able to create their own world by creating new words. Mm -hmm. So they believe that human actually are not part of the reality in any way. It's just something we are creating by mm -hmm. uh, turning new language into into mm -hmm. the world. We are creating a new world, mm -hmm. and and this is for me. The, the the largest split between 
subject and object or between human and reality. Mm -hmm. so, so for me, this is one of the biggest problems in social science today that we, this kind of thinking actually, uh, they, they really believe human are gods, <laughs> I would say. So that's yeah. one of the biggest problems I, I see. But social constructivism as an epistemic fundament I think it's it's correct, but not as ontological uh, creation of reality. And I think that's very important. Yes, I know. As a as someone with a physics background, I'm supposed to argue against social constructivism, which which might be said to be like the mortal enemy of uh, you know of, of things like fundamental physics. But taking uh, taking the devil's advocate for a moment, um, I feel like there's a strong argument to be made for the creative power of words and ideas. Um, I think one, one great example of this um, is Yuval Harari's Sapiens, where he describes, I think very convincingly, just how powerful the, the realm of ideas and words is in constructing the social reality that we inhabit. You know, For example, take you know, the idea of money, which is, you know, so governs our, you know, our, our every, um, our every movement in the world, uh, which is, you know, completely a, an, an invention of, of ourselves. Um, but it has in, in effect created its own world, of course, not literally created the world, but let's even take that idea for, for a moment and allow ourselves to fantasize. Uh, and again, my, my, um, my inspiration here is, is is John Wheeler and John John Wheeler's idea that once you once you eliminate that that glass wall that glass barrier between us and the world, um, and you realize that the observer and the thing being observed form a single system, you're also led to down the the path to what may seem on the face of it extremely counterintuitive ideas, such as that this universe we exist in is a is a participatory universe. You know, it is built out of interactions between things. In a way, it's even built out of our measurements of things. Um, but, you know, for example, the, the, the state of a quantum system is not determined until it is measured. What exactly does that me does that measuring? No one knows. There's still an abundance of theories and and no no way to uh, at, at this point to eliminate you know, theories which on the face of it seem like completely different from each other. You know, some some theories would say that consciousness itself is generative of reality. You know, Wheeler would say this when he talks about our observations, for example, of of distant quasars. Uh, and the gravitational lensing of these distant quasars by intervening galaxies. And the mere observation of that quasar almost forces, well, really does, in a mathematical way, forces the light that reaches our, our telescopes to pick a path around the galaxy to, to, to reach that telescope. That, that path was not determined until the observation was made. And so somehow the observation forces the light ray to do something that happened billions of years ago. And if you take that idea and, and extrapolate even farther back to the moment of the Big Bang, then you can make an argument that our observation of and participation in the universe 
is generative of the universe as a whole. Uh, this is a, an idea of which has been which was summarized as by Wheeler as it from bit. You know, the thing itself is is a result of information, uh, and information here is a stand-in for this idea of consciousness and, and the act of observation and so forth. And what this represents is a is a a new pathway forward that the ancient Greeks never thought of. You know, Aristotle being the first to to ask these questions about well, you know, what is the cause of things? How how are things? Uh, brought about in in the end, really could only think of two possibilities. He thought, well, everything is caused by something, and those some things are caused by other things. And so Aristotle asked in his metaphysics, he said, well, what are the possibilities here? Either you have to have an infinite regress, and and the the, the causes just go back, you know, sort of inf infinitely far back in time, which he just he rejected as as being uh, as being incoherent. Or the second possibility is. Well, at some point, the, that chain of causes ends with something which itself has no cause, um, and and this is the famous uncaused cause of the you know of the final books of the metaphysics that that Christian theologians latched onto as a, as a very convenient way of of inserting uh, a, 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 a theological idea of of uh, of God into into creation. But what Aristotle didn't think of was a third possibility, and that third possibility is that. Is that the chain of causes it bends around itself and ends up becoming self-caused, so that the so that the farther back in time you go, eventually you you come back to the starting point, um, and this isn't this is is I think very much very much aligned with this idea of Wheeler about the participatory universe and that idea that that eventually our you know eventually consciousness reaches a point. Where its very act of observation, its, its act of moving in the world, is generative of the world itself, all the way back in time. Uh, it's a very heady concept, and this concept actually was, I think, um, was, I, it, and it, it, you can go in so many directions with this. You know, ancient, you know, mystics of of all sorts of traditions have this idea of the of this of the consciousness being somehow generative um, uh, of, of the universe itself. Um, you have you know these various ideas uh, which are expressed uh, metaphorically in the symbol of the Ouroboros of the snake swallowing its tail, which is this constant renewal of creation and you know the, the cycles of death and rebirth. You have a circular notion of the universe as opposed to a linear notion uh, of the universe. Yeah, um, uh, but, yeah. Uh, Heraclitus also have this circle. I would say between death and life. Mm -hmm. And and so and also Plato, he believes in reincarnation, mm -hmm. and and he, he believes in change as something that has always been. Yes. So so uh, so that's that's like a unity in in what uh, what is all actually been going on for mm -hmm. all time. Why it's, it's always interesting uh, how Aristotle's interprets uh, Plato because mm -hmm. he's he's I wonder sometimes that he has he can't have read everything that we are actually have the ability to read uh, nowadays. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder, wonder sometimes I really wonder and 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 uh, I read a lot of people being critic yeah being critical to Aristotle. Aristotle's interpretation of Plato, mm -hmm. and and uh, also of course 
the Nietzsche interpretation of Heraclitus is, is very problematic because he's, yeah. he's the one that makes him into a relativist and to uh, to yes. this flow and he, he, yeah so logos and, and yes. I think what you express as uh, consciousness could that be what Heraclitus uh, means by logos yes I th I think the two are must be highly it must be highly related to each other you know for Heraclitus the logos is more of an ordering principle but it's also the principle of um well la later on in the in in this idea of the logos has this incredible history throughout throughout thought but it begins as as um something very very closely related to the notion of cosmos you know the sort of interconnected you know web of things um but it also takes on its own kind of generative meaning in the in the in the gospel of of john um where in the beginning was this logos you know and the and the logos was with god and the logos was god it's it's something which was uh somehow separate from the creative principle somehow with the creative principle and this logos it becomes flesh and dwells among us it's something that that has a uh that, that has a, a manifestation in the world um and it's something that you mentioned Nietzsche I mean Nietzsche I think also intuited something about this uh at the end of the will to power which is this you know, collection of essays published posthumously there's this um uh there's a, a, a beautiful paragraph where he identifies he says do you want you want to know do you want to know what the secret of everything is basically he says it is this will to power he says he calls it a monster of energy he says it's you know without purpose but it's just out there you know, creating and smashing and destroying, and there's no perfection or anything in it unless it's the perfection of the circle, because it's infinitely generative and regenerative. It's like the circle of life and birth itself, uh, and he ends up defining it as as the as the will to power. And Schopenhauer also uh, had a similar idea that um, that in the end everything is, uh, and and this basically encapsulated in the in the title of his uh, of his of his magnum opus. Um, which is uh, the world as will and representation. You know, we see the world as representation, which is you know Kant's idea of all we have access to are the are the are the are the phenomena. But underneath that are the noumena, the things that can't be observed. And Schopenhauer identified that with the will, um, uh, which is I think a, a variation of Nietzsche's will to power that sort of underlying everything. And this is the logos principle: is this principle is this raw sort of energy, this raw force of that wills itself into being. Um, but whereas Nietzsche and Schopenhauer interpreted this, I think in more pessimistic terms, they saw it as blind. They saw it as as almost something to be that we want to free ourselves from. You know, we we get trapped in this cycle of birth and death. You know, in the Buddhist sense, you you want to free yourself from it. Um, you you become a prey or a slave to instinct, and you want to sort of you know break yourself out of the out of the instinct of this will which dominates all things. But I think there's a way that one can look at it in more positive terms that, you know, this will, this primal will, this thing, which is the, the logos principle is uh, is generative in the sense of the self participant, in the sense of the participatory universe of, uh, of Wheeler or in the sense of the logos of the Gospel of John. Um, we can look at will itself, consciousness itself as this ordering principle that is constantly in, a, in, in this process of birth and death and that is and that is ever giving rise to it to its own to its own being. Uh, seeing the world in those terms is, I think, 
complementary to seeing the world as divided up into many, divided up into separate scattered things. Those separate scattered things all manifest to some, in some limited way, the reality of that will, of that energy, of that logos that, that underlies everything. And it brings all things together so that maybe at one level of approximation, to bring it to, to the sort of present day, you know, crisis of civilization, we can, at one level of approximation, we can see ourselves as, um, as, as separate beings in competition with each other or temporarily gathered up into tribes, nations, races, and so forth that are, in that are fundamentally in competition with each other. Or we can go to a deeper level and understand that behind all of this froth of the physical world, behind all of this living and dying and struggling and so forth, is a single light that's shining, is a single ocean, you know, uh, underlying all things of which we are the waves and drops, uh, and which gives a kind of, not just a unity to the human experience, but gives a kind of overarching purpose and goal to the human experience. Because again, one of the, one of these threads of uh, uh, the, the, the warps, you know, that run through civilization is this question of, well, is, is everything, purposeless? Is it just atoms in the void bouncing around like Democritus said, or is there purpose underlying everything? And one way to understand how we can see purpose underlying things, things is in relation to this concept of will and the self-generative power of the will. If, if that's how the universe came into being, then there is a direction to things. We're not born into a purposeless universe. We're born into a universe that is going somewhere. Where is that universe going? Where is humanity going? Where are we individually going? We're going in the direction of consciousness because the direction of consciousness is the direction of creation. And that gives us a kind of a point of unity to rally around as a species and as a, as a, as a united ecosystem on this planet that we are all manifestations of this infinitely generative will. You, you, sound, you sound like Hegel. In many ways, and in, because he, he also believed that, like, the consciousness, like uh, the yeah. that was the the final um, the point, and and he understood that that was something we actually uh, came to. It came to birth with uh, with Napoleon. So yes. it was a little bit. Yeah, maybe it was, so he maybe somehow it, was, it stopped with like the evolution of the modern German state for him. Strangely yeah. enough, what ends up. One ends up with not enough imagination to extrapolate yeah. beyond. <laughs> but but uh, but this this uh, argument about the light and and uh, uh, actually there are something good or, or and this is also between the, the, the difference between chaos and cosmos. Mm -hmm. And Plato Plato he he tried in many his of his dialogue he tried to to to, to explain why he believed that it was the good that actually existed as the measurement of everything. And he, mm -hmm. he believed that Logos and the good was the same. Mm -hmm. And that, um, and one of, mm -hmm. one of his, um, uh, one of his metaphor was on the light, the, the, the difference between the dark and the light. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he tried to explain the God uh, to be good or to be evil. In the same uh, in in the same thoughts as dark and light that uh, uh, means that the light does exist but darkness doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Darkness is only the lack of absence light, of. absence yes. of. Yes. So and that's 
the same way he explained good and evil, that good is something that exists and evil is actually only um, lack of. It's absence mm. of good. So mm. if somebody is doing something that is bad, it, it, it's only lack of goodness that yes. is taking part of, of what the person is doing. Yes. And, and, and he would say the same in with with beauty the the difference between the beauty and and ugliness then yeah. if we could say yes. that, that would be also the same that is ugliness is only a lack of beauty yes and one of his most influential students not not direct student in his lifetime but in the school of plato centuries later uh plotinus who was you know working in the late late roman empire um took this idea of light and and turned it into a whole into a whole metaphysics of light almost with the idea of emanation that um that there's an emanation of you know from the one and that everything can be seen as degrees as degrees of light you know emanating from from this singular principle um in which also in this idea in, in this metaphysics there's no darkness darkness has no reality of its own um it's it's simply different degrees of light um but still within that, we have to somehow account for the evil that we see in the world. Uh, because evil does exist in, in, in a real sense, in the sense that um in the sense that we're all familiar with uh on this planet. And it's it's perhaps too easy metaphysically to dismiss the existence of evil and say, well, there's only light and degrees of light. Uh, but when you're face to face with when you're face to face with evil itself, um, you realize there, ha there there has to be a a way to understand that as well. You know, how do we get light and darkness from a way of seeing the world which is just uh, which is which is entirely dominated by this idea of uh, of logos? Yeah, and and of, so and this is this was uh, plato was of course aware of this and and he he knew that if human was able they would they would do evil things uh, if they didn't uh, get recognized or they could still have a go a good reputation they would do evil uh, even with consciousness so so he he didn't he didn't um, uh, underestimated humans but he tried to explain how logical if we are really thinking of it, is it really good to be unjust or to be evil? Is this something that is actually something you want to do or want to? If you, how to speak, how to say it, really feel that you are part of what is. I mean, mm -hmm. so 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 in so in in, in his. Speaking, he would say that uh, the if humans sh uh, should be able to do good, they have to have a whole theoretical worldview. Not only, not only, this is something you should do in your um, life today, or the handbook of something or anything, but you have to have a whole understanding of what really exists and what you are as a human being part of the existence mm -hmm. you have to be part of theoria mm -hmm. 
that's the only way if we are to to uh, to do good. That's so, so that would be his answer. That he, his answer would be that you have to understand logos. You have to understand the one. You have to really to learn about the one and to be part of the one. Yes, and going back to that initial statement of, of Heraclitus, it is wise. You're following, listening not to me but to the logos. It is wise to agree that all things are one. Which is such an amazing statement because it's not a matter of this is the way things are. I think even as you know, it, at that early stage, I think even then they understood that you can argue different points of view. You know, the sophists were famous for that, you know, just arguing different points of view based not on what they thought was really true, but based on, you know, getting someone to a certain point more, let's say, as an exercise of power or something like that. Um, and even today, we realize for these great these warp threads that 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 run through our, our history we understand that there are justifiable ways of looking at the world in terms of the many and ways of looking at the world in, in, in terms of the one and which one we choose is a function of wisdom yeah it's a function of what is the need for the day what are the exigencies of the day um and how and, and how can we and should we act together in relationship to those exigencies. And I think one overarching idea, at least in, in my thinking, is that the way of looking at the world as separate um, has not, not run its course, but has reached a point where it needs to be increasingly balanced by this way of looking at the world uh, as integral, uh, as organic, as evolutionary and 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 deeply interfused and, and interconnected. And, and so it's a matter of, it's not, and, and it's not so much a scientific question of like finding the right scientific theory that proves this point, because there are competing theories that are, let's say, equally valid within their own domains. And so the real challenge then is to find an overarching narrative within which these sub-narratives can find validity. And I can say this in, in, from the perspective of scientific theories, but more importantly, it can be said from the perspective of human theories that enable human beings to act together coherently on this planet. At the largest level, we're talking about religious systems. We're, ta we're talking about, you know, the, at, at the theological level, at the level of social teachings, at the level of at any level you can imagine, there are these great chasms between belief systems. Um, and I think the, the the crying need of the day is, is to find overarching narratives that can validate these different systems of belief uh, and see them as all expressions, relatively true expressions within some within some larger narrative. Um, I guess in some way it, it's it's you know, looking for another grand narrative. And I know that the, the, this whole quest for grand narratives, as a bit of a questionable, you know, has produced questionable results, you know, over the last few centuries. But I do think this is what the world needs, um, as a as a matter of wisdom, as a matter of exigencies of, of of the day, as a matter of common survival. You know, because if we don't find some overarching grand narrative, um, we're going to end up destroying ourselves. Uh, so maybe so you, in you, a few generations. So 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 you don't don't believe in uh, in uh in people just listening to logos 
Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> but, because, but what people hear will be different. No, that that that's that's the point of Heraclitus. I think is that if we actually are listening to our wisdom or logos or truth, if we actually choose truth, mm -hmm. then we will listen to the same. We will listen to the one, and that's that the is, point. That's, that's a, maybe that's a, a very good point to 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 stop on and to start our next session with yeah. is this question because it, it's a huge question you know this is you know a major question if we are all in good faith seeking the truth um, are we necessarily all going to come to the same conclusions about in what that truth consists or is it possible that good faith explorations of the truth will actually lead to different conclusions based upon whatever different cultural presuppositions that we can't get out of different habits of mind that are somehow intrinsic to us as individuals you know are there aspects of human diversity which are ineradicable which we don't want to eradicate because they're, maybe they're part of the strength of of humanity and not you know they're a feature feature and not a bug um and if that's the case then maybe our, our various explorations of the truth will necessarily lead to different, say, religious systems or different, you know, some people who say it's many and other people who say it's one, um, as, as one example. Um, is that, is that the, the, the sort of future that, that we have in front of us? Or, as you're suggesting, is it possible that if we just do it right, you know, and if, we, and if we're doing it in good faith and, and we find some, you know, common set of principles to uh, to work with, uh, are we uh, are we necessarily going to get to the same idea of what is true and beautiful and good? Yeah. So so to the listeners, uh, it would be nice to I mean to to read the dialogue of Plato and think of it as all the different kind of possibility of thinking, trying to think logical about the same thing and see is it one answer that is the correct answer or is it many hmm. i think that would be very nice uh wait so, so read the gorgias dialogue for instance hmm. mm -hmm. so thank you for this time you have been listening to athens and jerusalem created by cameron namdar stephen phelps and knut ovese nora julist broadcast voice and technical support Music is pieces of Edvard Grieg's Morning Mood. The voices in the intro are Victor Frankel, interview with Robert Oppenheimer and Pope John Paul II. Thank you for listening and please check out another episode.